Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. One, two, three. And now, everybody, MC Search. MC Search. MC Search. MC Search. MC Search. Search will never stand still. Hey, what's up? It's your boy, the other white meat. MC Search. Search says podcast. Um, I'm very thankful that this man hung out because um I wasted about two hours of his time, and I apologize for that. So he's going to give me a solid 30, a hot 30, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Hansen. How you doing? I'm good, sir. How are good. you? Thanks for having me. How's no, everything? Thank you. Thank you. For it wasn't here. two hours. Just a it feels hour. like, you know, two hours, <laughs> three hours. You know, I like to, you know, I'm a Jew from Queens, so I'm going to exaggerate on wasting your time. <laughs> so, um, but I want to kind of start a little bit at the beginning, and we can fast forward to sure. everything, because... You and I have a mutual love for the city of Detroit. Absolutely. I spent uh, some time there on the radio being very proudly the very first non-African-American to host WJLB. You go up listening to JLB. Yeah, JLB and GPR and... Electrifying Mojo. Yeah, exactly, all that. Um, What was it like growing up in in Detroit? Detroit, I was in the suburbs, but, you know, we did get into the city frequently, and we moved there, my family and I, in 1968. So it was the summer, the spring and summer after the riots. And uh, we came from Chicago, where both my parents were from. My dad got transferred there. He was in the auto industry. And, and it was really a nice childhood. I mean, we were a great suburb, great subdivision. Um, you know, as a young adult, you know, spent some time in the city uh, listening to Marvelous Marv, your midday DJ and WGPR and, and all that, and, and working, um, you know, in summer jobs where I had exposure to, you know, urban life. And so it was great. It was wonderful. And went off to college at Michigan State and then came back and was a reporter in Detroit for about 10 years before I came out here to New York. Right. So I'm sorry that you couldn't get into Michigan and had to settle for Michigan State. Uh, By the way, that is a Michigan (laughs) joke. FYI. You know, I did get into, you know, I did get into Michigan. Oh, you did? I had the choice. This was My father was irritated with me because I, for a minute, and I explained to him that well, a couple of things. One, that I thought Michigan State was a better broadcast journalism school. Which it is. It's not, I, it's well, not, it, worked, it's not it worked out for me. It's Michigan's, not a better acting school. Michigan, Michigan's a fine, fine school, obviously. My sister went there. Um, but because we she have couldn't a, get into Michigan State, obviously. <laughs> that's my joke. <laughs> she, doesn't, she doesn't take kindly to that. No, I'm sure. Most people from Michigan don't. But there's, you have to understand the rivalry between Michigan and Michigan State. It is fierce. I, I'm very well And especially aware. this year, uh, when both football teams, both very good, will go into this matchup on October 30th, likely undefeated. 
there's and a that's going to be chance. that's going to be a heck of a game. Yeah, and they're are they playing it in Big Blue or are they playing it? They're in, they're playing it at uh, at Michigan State in East oh. Lansing. Yeah. Okay, so that's going to be an amazing. Oh game. yeah, yeah, that's going to be incredible. So do do guys like you get the uh, get the grass? Do you get to walk on the grass for games like that? I have. Have not, you pulled the Chris Hansen card? I, I I've done it before. Uh, Will I you do it for this one? Probably not. Um, I'll probably watch it so I can focus on it at home. I think it's going to be a night game. It's TBA right now, but we'll probably go up there. We uh, Two kids are still uh, in school there, so we may go up for a tailgate and then come back and watch it so I can really see it. I had season tickets up there for years and kind of got out of the habit of going just because you know, we travel back and forth between New York and Michigan. We have a home in Michigan and a place right here in the city. So when the kids were younger – when my second son was still there, we we would go a lot, and then this, the younger two kids started, and and we just kind of got out of the habit of of getting to the games, and uh, but we watch them, right? You know, and you did a lot of investigative reporting. That was really your specialty in Detroit. You know, I just watched the Netflix special on on Maserati Rick, but there's a lot of really great work that you did, especially around the Coleman Young era, and kind of unearthing a lot of the kind of nepotism and the issues that were going on in the city. And and a lot of it kind of created a lot of that racial divide. How did you, how were you received during those days when you were kind of doing I was that very stuff? well received. Uh, you know, I got along with everybody as a reporter then and as a correspondent and journalist now. Um, you know, I had a very unique relationship with Coleman Young. I, uh, I adored the man personally. I gave him a heart attack occasionally in news conferences and uh, in interviews, but but we had a mutual respect. And, and to understand Coleman Young is to understand what it was like to come up from Black Bottom in Detroit and then to ultimately become mayor of the city. And, you know, I'm sure along the way, I know along the way, you have to give and take and you have to be a street fighter in a way. And he was. But he deeply cared for that city. He deeply cared for his constituents. And along the way, there were investigations, and there were things that happened. And I pressed him on those things. One specifically was we learned that he was an investor with a shady character who was a civilian police deputy chief, Kenneth Weiner, mm -hmm. in South African Krugerrands. Now, this came at a time after the mayor was ceremoniously arrested protesting apartheid in Washington. And yet it comes out that he was investing in these Cougarans. Amazing. So I asked him about this on a Friday news conference, and he says he doesn't want to dignify the question with a response. And so it goes around the room again. I asked him a second time, and he doesn't answer. And a third time I asked, and he got irritated with me. He goes, Hanson, I told you I'm not going to answer the question. I said, all you have to do is explain to people why you did this. He said, all you have to do is not ask the motherfucking question. So you can imagine what that was right. leading uh, the news uh, with Bill Bonds on that Friday afternoon at five o'clock. So <laughs> no, and, he, he finally exploded, you know. No, and, and but that's not the only time he exploded on you. I mean, I think his nickname for you was motherfucking Chris. <laughs> like, I think there was several. I don't know about I that. I think there was another issue where it was right after the Cougaran question, where there was the issue with the, not the Maserati, Rick. White boy Rick. White boy Rick Wershey Jr. Right, right, so right. Rick Wershey Jr., as you know from the Netflix um, documentary that I was in that so many people have seen, was a young guy who was a police and FBI informant who then went into the cocaine trade himself at the age of 
17. 16, 17 years old. And we're all over this, uh, like White on Rick, as they say back in the day. And, you know, it was a hell of a story, you know, and I didn't name him that, but I found out that's what his nickname was. And of course, that caught fire right away. And so we stayed on top of the story, and I get a tip one day that they're going to raid the mayor's niece's townhouse. Now, the mayor's niece was married to Johnny Curry, who was in prison as a major cocaine dealer, bigger, arguably, than, uh, than Rick. And so when they raided that townhouse, looking for evidence having to do with an investigation, the FBI finds Rick lying in bed naked with Kathy Volson Curry, the niece. Now, imagine that story. Right. So I call Bob Berg, great guy, who is the press secretary for the mayor, challenging job, even on a good day. And I said, hey, you know, I just want a comment from the mayor or the mayor's office regarding white boy Rick being in the bed with Kathy Volson Curry when the FBI raided the townhouse. And he says to me, well, you're not going to do a story on that. I said, hell yes, I'm going to do a story on that. I'm, you know, the live truck's putting the, the mast up right now. And well, we'll have no comment on that. But it was, you know, it was a crazy time to be a reporter. In Detroit, a great time to be a reporter, a very competitive time to be a reporter. And uh, we we battled it out between the stations and the newspapers at the time. And it doesn't seem that it ever slowed down. I mean, even through when I was there through the Kwame Kilpatrick. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, I mean, arguably it got uh, even busier. I mean, I wasn't there as a reporter during the Kilpatrick years, but Kevin Dietz, who's a family friend, a longtime friend of mine who's a reporter there, you know, lived the Kwame Kilpatrick story for, yeah. for years and the saga and the things that happened and the, you know, the alleged corruption and the, you know, the federal investigations. I mean, that was nuts. Yeah, it was that crazy. Was gangland I, I mean, stuff. I know? was, I was involved in it. My name is mentioned yeah, in, I know. in the, uh, in the, uh, in the, in the, uh, in the pagers, but was the Rick and the work that you did as an investigative reporter, the catalyst that brought you to New York? Was that kind of the... the? I think it was a combination of things. You know, when I was a reporter in Tampa, Florida, before I came to Detroit, I got to know the Miami bureau chief pretty well. And, and he ended up being a vice president of NBC News. And, and they were very good in those days at, you know, identifying younger guys and gals who were in the business and bringing them up to the network. And, and so it was Don Brown who... Um, I met as a reporter in Tampa when he was Miami bureau chief and, and ultimately had the chance to, to go to NBC in 1993. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of that work was helpful. I think the Chambers brothers, the drug case where the guys had their, uh, the videotapes of their ill-gotten gains, you know, that was a big story. I got those tapes. And, and obviously the White Boy Rick story was on the reel and, and so many other things. You know, we, we were able to go overseas. We, we traced cocaine from the the jungles of Bolivia to the streets of Detroit. I mean, we were able to do a lot of very important, uh, compelling stories, and that fortunately caught the attention of, of uh, the network. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. 
How did your wife feel about you going from Detroit to New York? I mean, one of the things that I tend to, and again, this is, I can only share this with a few people because, you know, my wife and I are from Queens, right? And Mm. I told her, oh, I'm going to go to Detroit. You know, my plan was I was going to stay in Detroit. I was going to go to Detroit, do the morning show, be there for 20 years and retire. Like, that was my plan. Yeah. Um, I can tell you that my wife was not happy in me going to Detroit. She was not happy. And my kids were miserable in going to Detroit. And if it wasn't for, you know, fortunes outside that I created, they were a misery. You were settled in Detroit. You had a family in Detroit. You had really built a... You know, one one son who was, you know, very young at the time in Detroit. My second son was born on the East Coast. So it was... I was settled there and and had a great life in Detroit. And, um, you know, could have gone to the network for two years and come back and anchored the news there. And that that's a wonderful career. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's nothing nothing wrong with that and not, nothing necessarily better about being in the network. But I just felt that I had more to do. And two years into the network stay, I was offered a chance to go back to, to one of the stations in Anchor. And, and I was very flattered by that. And yet I didn't feel that I had accomplished enough at the right. network level. I mean, I'm just two years into it. I just under, started to understand it. You know, when you go from a street reporter, even if you consider yourself a good street reporter who had some anchoring experience, it's a different world. I mean, it's it's uh, your first year. It's like a rookie year playing sports. I mean, you can wash out very easily if you're not all over it and if you don't live it. And there's a big difference between doing stories that are two minutes long and rat-a-tat-tat-tat and telling the story even live, and doing a news magazine story that's 10, 15, 20 minutes or an hour long, that's a different style of writing. It's a different style of, of uh, laying down audio tracks. And, and I had people surrounding me that took the time to teach me how to do that. I didn't know how to do that when I went to the network. I had you know, Jeff Zucker, who was then the executive producer of uh, – the first show I worked on now with Tom Brokaw and Katie Couric and Elizabeth O'Connell and Paul Greenberg, these people sat in a tracking booth with me and said, calm down, slow down. You're telling a story. This isn't just boom, 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 boom. And, you know, without those people, I may not have made it. You know, a lot of, you know, Tim Eulinger was a great producer who I worked with right off the get-go. I mean, those people all helped me. Yeah, no, you found your tribe. You really right. were able to find your tribe. And, and, you know, people very loyal and to whom I was very loyal. But, it, you know, it is a it's a first year of hazing to get through it all right. in many cases. <laughs> okay, hazing. What what was one of the things they like? What what That's was the haze? Not, it's for you? it's what, probably an extreme what, word what, to use. What water did they make you carry on? Did they send you to juniors for no, cheesecake but what, in what, your what, bare uh, feet? Like, no, just, nothing like that. But, what, what, you know, we had a show. That was very new and did not have a library. We had nothing on the shelf. So literally on Friday, Saturday, we decide what story it was I was going to crash, what I was going to turn around for the following Wednesday. I would get on a plane on Sunday, whether it was Michael Jackson or Polly Class or the Unabomber or whatever it was, I would go work around the clock many weeks uh, shoot Monday, Tuesday, get it on the air Wednesday night, fly back to New York, go to the staff meeting, get patted on the head, literally crash Friday, Saturday, and get ready to go on Sunday. And that was, 
you know, for weeks at a time. That was my life, which was great. It was amazing. For you, your wife must have been well, we miserable. Two, 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 at the time, we had two little kids and, and you know, it, it was a different sort of life than some of the people who worked nine to five, but yeah. it was a good life. Um, you know, I was glad to be 34 at the time and, <laughs> right. and, and, and be, you know, fairly fit. But I remember I had to have a hernia surgery that first year and, and uh, literally, you know, I took the time off, but had, with staples in my gut, getting on a plane with a, you know, oh, yeah. shoulder bag and, and it's time to go, man. This is go time. And speaking of go time, I mean, obviously you're very, very well known for, you know, to catch a predator. Sure. How did that idea, how, what was the impetus of that idea and how did that kind of come about? I was at Dateline. It was 2004. And um, I learned about perverted justice. A friend of mine who was a reporter in Detroit uh, told me about perverted justice, which was at the time an online watchdog group that had decoys who went into chat rooms posing as kids. And if a guy hit on the kid, um, they would post that guy's information, if a meeting was set, on their website. And occasionally, law enforcement would get involved in those cases. So I figured, well, if we could take their ability as decoys and combine it with our ability to wire a house with, a, with hidden cameras and microphones, it could be pretty compelling. And so we, I pitched it just as a regular story for Dateline. I had no idea that it would become a series or that it would become what it, what it did. But we did it in Bethpage, Long Island in February 2004. And, and I'm thinking, driving out there, what if nobody shows up? What if I've just wasted tens of thousands of dollars of the network's money? And with that, the producer calls and says, there are two guys heading over here in 45 minutes. Where the hell are you? So I get there. And before it was over, 17 guys surfaced in that investigation, including a New York City firefighter. Mm-hmm. And so that aired months later, and predictably, it got a lot of attention. It was very compelling. We were taking people inside the commission oh, of a felony. I know. And so we did it again, the second time outside of Washington, D.C. And and it was then that we had the opportunity to work with law enforcement in California, in Riverside County. And it became clear in those two first investigations. Now, law enforcement did get involved. They did make some prosecutions. In both the firefighter was prosecuted, and and a number and of people were, were prosecuted arrests. Out, arrests out of the out of the uh, the Herndon, Virginia case, but it was more difficult after the fact. They had to get our stuff. They had to figure out a way to prosecute it, and and it, it, we had the opportunity to work with law enforcement, where law enforcement was getting the transcripts at the same time. I could do what I needed to do. Law enforcement could make their arrest, make a prosecution, and it worked better. It worked better socially in terms of our responsibility. And quite honestly, it worked better as a television show because there was some resolution. It was frustrating to see these guys twirling an umbrella walking down the street after being, you know, confronted by me trying to rape a child. Yeah. One of my, um, one of the episodes I remember, and it, it, it's still kind of, I get a little choked up when I think about it. Uh, a rabbi showed up. Yeah, that was in Herndon, Virginia. Yeah, David Kay. Um, I knew him. Oh, you did? Yeah, I knew him from New York. I had met him at uh, at an event at my shul. Um, and uh, I remember seeing it, and I mean, obviously, I was beyond shocked and stunned. 
but almost to this day, I still hear his stupid ass like excuse mm -hmm. and his apology, thinking that he was going to apologize. Right. And walk I out. know I'm in trouble. You know, I'm in, in trouble. trouble. I don't want to get into any more trouble. I'm just going to walk out of here. Yeah. And then they put the cuffs on him. And I got to tell you to your face, I would have put a fucking bullet in his head. If I was outside that door, it's such a, in, in Judaism, we call it a Shanda. Yeah. A Lushen Hara. There's so many words that come to me that is, he disgraced our religion. It was just so beautiful. It was, it was so beautiful what you did and how you handled it, but it was so disgusting. He walked into that house like he owned the place. Oh, yeah. With a spring and a step, which is what was so offensive. Now, this is a Wednesday around noon. I knew, yeah. In a beautiful suburb of the, Washington, D.C., essentially. Kid came out, waved hi. Yeah, it was Del Harvey at the time. Right. She posed as a boy and said, hey, come on in. And he came in with a spring in his step. I mean, happy, like happy. And, happy dappy. Yeah. And uh, then he saw me, and you could see the oh, shock yeah. in his face. Yeah. And uh, he had sent naked photographs of himself, photographs of him performing sex on another man to who he thought was a 13-year-old boy. And when I confronted him with those photographs, he went to go grab it. It looked like he was coming after me. He really wasn't. I he know. was going after the photos, but it turned into a tussle and, uh -huh. you know, like we didn't have 100 copies of those photos or couldn't get them right. from, the, from the chat transcript. So that was what that was all about. And ultimately, the FBI prosecuted, went after him, arrested him, and he had a bench trial in federal court. And the judge was so outraged by the case that he went beyond the sentencing guidelines. And I think the guidelines were like five years and sentenced him to six and a half years in prison. Yeah. And he's been in and out since then yes. because he's violated his parole and, and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And he's become an addict. And, and it, you know, as big as the Jewish community is, it's very small. Yeah. And uh, especially on the East Coast. Um, I know you got to go. And, and I, I, I want to also just say that one of my personal favorite moments is your episode on DJ Vlad. Um, and I want to tell you why. I think Vlad is a piece of shit. And I'm not a fan. Um, he lied to me. He's lied to a lot of people. He, I, I think he's a culture vulture. But I want to ask you just directly. You said to Vlad, well, I hear that you are an informant for the FBI. Is he an informant for the FBI or were you just pulling it? What, just what I said was he had asked me a question and, and um, you know, I knew where he was going with it. And, right. and uh, I said, you know, people say a lot of things. Some people say that you're an informant for the FBI. Now, uh, you know, what I know isn't important in terms of content as it is I called Context, him out because right. he was he, he was he was saying things that were tabloid he was asking about tabloid rumor stuff some of which you know just wasn't wasn't it's true just, or right. relevant but that's right I I sat down for the interview he can ask me whatever he wants if I can't handle it I shouldn't do the interview I handled it just fine and people have come up to me and said that I don't have a problem with him he asked the questions that he thought were interesting I answered them in what I thought was an interesting way. And you did an amazing job. Well, I, it's, I, you I know, just... when you do something for 40 years, you start to get okay at it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I have no beef with I, you I at will, all. I at all. say to you, my friend, that you are the rock hymn of journalism. 
And to me, Rakim is the greatest MC of all time. Well, I appreciate that. And That's I kind find from you, you Chris Hansen, to be the greatest journalism of journalists of our generation. And I'll tell you why. And it's really simple. And it's really Rakim is great at what he does because he makes the complex simple. And you are great at what you do because you make the complex simple. You are able to dial it down so that I can understand it and that the world can understand it. And we need more Chris Hansen. Well, I always say, uh, fortunately, I'm too stupid to realize there's anything I cannot do. <laughs> Chris Hansen, ladies and gentlemen, his podcast. Predators I've Caught with Chris Hansen is out everywhere you can get your podcasts. We've got a couple series on Discovery Plus, Onision in Real Life, Unseemly, the Peter Nygaard story, YouTube, have a seat with Chris Hansen, and a bunch more stuff coming out soon, including more Predator investigations. Love that. Love that. And uh, thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you. Thanks for I having me. I appreciate it. all the time that our most valuable commodity at this point in our life is our time. And I thank you so much <clears> for spending it My with pleasure. Me. My pleasure.